welcome to Memorial Hall Library's Shelf Help Podcast. I'm Stephanie Smith, a reference and cataloging librarian. I'm Justin Tremini, a reference librarian. And in this week's episode, we are going to be talking about the library's adult graphic novel collection, which Justin, among his other job duties, is responsible for collecting. So where do you want to start, Justin? Um, I guess just in general, um, I don't know, do you read graphic novels? Do you read adult Not graphic novels? often. I have mm. read a few, usually as part of a book club, although every now and then I'll pick one up on my own if, mm. um, if the topic looks compelling enough. Mm-hmm. I think because I'm not used to reading that way, mm-hmm. it's almost like being, I, I don't read them a lot because it's almost for me like learning to read again because mm-hmm. it's such a different like mental process from mm-hmm. just doing words on the page. And so I think in the same way that like young readers will, you know, maybe get frustrated with a book more easily, mm-hmm. I, I have a little bit of that same thing where it's like I haven't done enough of them to get fluent at it. Mm. But then because it's more of a struggle, I don't do a lot more, so I never do get fluent. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, That reminds me of, like, reading in a foreign language where it feels like work. Exactly. Until you get to a point where you can kind of fluently read through it. Right. And so I, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people maybe have this idea that, like, oh, it's just looking at pictures. Like, it's easy. It's not really reading. Mm -hmm. And I would not agree with that at all it's just it's a different type of reading and it's a different type of literacy yeah um and yeah just you know requires sort of different brain functions and processes Mm -hmm. and so if if something looks really compelling i will do it and i have almost always enjoyed the graphic novels that i've read Mm -hmm. um but I don't usually seek them out. Hmm. Especially right now, I've mostly been reading ebooks still. And well, of course, you can borrow them as ebooks. Mm-hmm. For me, where it's like already hard to like sometimes parse the visual representations mm-hmm. to then shrink that onto a phone size screen. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, for the same reason that like easy readers have large, like large print because kids' mm-hmm. eyes aren't used to deciphering letters yet. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same thing for me. I'm like, oh, I can't, like, I need the big thing. <laughs> when I think with graphic novels, it's so interesting too, because even like we have a stack of them right. here and like they're not constrained by format like a novel would be. Right. So some of them are bigger, some of them yeah. are smaller, some of them take on different dimensions and that's so based on the actual art that's inside. So to constrain it to like, a phone or even a tablet right. is kind of unfair to yeah. the artist in a lot of ways. Definitely. I've never, I've never really like played around with ebook versions yeah. of graphic novels. Um, I mean, it's great. It's a great way to be able to access them. Right. Um, you know, cause in, they're, they're generally a little more expensive than, yes. than books. So I think, you know, I don't buy them myself right. really. I get them pretty much all through the library yeah. with the rare occasion, like the rare exception. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess the ebook version of it could be make it more accessible to people, which right. is always good. Yeah. But an interesting, um, th- so there's a book called Understanding Comics by an author called Scott McCloud, okay, who is a graphic novel artist who did a more kind of famous work in the '80s. Mm-hmm. He was kind of famous for taking like American style comic art and then Japanese style manga art yeah. and kind of blending them together. And then he later did a book, this book called Understanding Comics, yeah. which was him kind of breaking down what it is as an art form how to read it, what the visual vocabulary is, and it's done in the form of a graphic novel. So it can almost be like, it's like an instruction manual, right. which I'd hate to say to somebody like, oh, you don't get your graphic novels. Here, read this instruction yeah. manual. It makes it sound <laughs> awful. But it's interesting because it's really engaging. Yeah. And he has this really great point that always stuck with me of like, 
it's an art form that's almost in between the written word and film. Like it's somewhere yes. because you know the way your your brain registers it, it, mm-hmm. it almost reads it like a film. But then it's interesting because you can go at your own pace versus right. a film is like you're you're just a passive kind of captive audience member. A graphic novel you can go. I mean, theoretically, with a film you could rewind it or whatever. Right. But with a graphic novel, you can go back. You can yeah. linger on a panel. You can spend more time with it. And then there's that interesting thing of there's what goes on in between the panels right. and even how the artist chooses like to represent action, you know, like one panel is like a person standing at the door, the next panel they're outside and your brain is like, obviously they walked through the door. Right. And in film you get that a little bit cause there's cuts, but not, it's not quite as, as you know, definitive to the art, I guess, right. as it is with graphic novels. Right. And you would never have a film with, with that many cuts. I mean, right. if you think, even if you think of a graphic novel, like, in terms of scenes, mm-hmm. you know, like, you have film scenes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be like having, a, you know, like, ten cuts in one scene. Right. And there, I mean, there's a technique called a jump cut right. in, in film where, uh, you know, like, Martin That's Scorsese famously yeah. would. But it's more to get a psychological effect. Like, if right. it's somebody staring at themselves in the mirror and you keep cutting to them in different positions. Right then, you know, that's telling you something and it's making you think something. Right. But you wouldn't just have a person walking down the street and randomly keep cutting. Yeah. Unless you really wanted to say something. <laughs> but with a graphic novel, yeah, you can do that. Right. And, it's, and you it, sort of have to. Because, yeah. I mean, you can't... I mean, otherwise you're just, like, drawing basically for an anime... Like, for a cartoon. Where it's like you show every single motion. But that would not make for a compelling Or the other end of the spectrum is, remember those, like, family circus comics where it would be, like, the map of the path the kid took to get home? That's, like, the other end of the spectrum, (laughs) which is, like, one, like, panel, and you try to tell the whole story in that one panel, which is another form that you can do, too. Yeah, and I could see that being being occasionally, like, interspersed within a graphic novel, but Mm -hmm. probably not the predominant. Yeah, not the whole thing. Right. Like, you know, I could see that being a one page out of, you know, a 200 page graphic novel or something. But yeah, it wouldn't maybe make sense to do all of the, you know, all representations of movement that way. Right, right. Yeah. And and again, like, unless that's what you're going for. Right. um, And sometimes, yeah, they, they can be kind of split up. Sometimes some artists like to really play with the form. So you'll have like, you know, sort of classically you'll have those panels like three or four panels and sometimes the characters will kind of bleed off the panels or be outside of the panels or the panels will physically break and stuff like that you know right um and i guess that's what's interesting with adult graphic novels typically is there's a playfulness to it um and there's an experimentation a lot of times um even in terms of the subject matter it can be a little more edgier i suppose um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for me, like, I grew up reading superhero comics, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I don't really keep up on those so much right. anymore. Um, some point in my 20s, I started to kind of transition over yeah. to more kind of personal stories right. or independent comics, stuff like that. Um, which is interesting because that's sort of how the collection here in the library is set up. Yeah, so how long have we collected them here? For, like, the, I, specifically the adult graphic Yeah, novels. I mean, I think... In my time here, I know there's some that, like, were integrated into the fiction collection at one point. Right. There's some that were in, like, the 791 kind yeah, of Yeah, I think it's 745, 745 for, um, for, for graphic novels, which is yeah. sort of a weird place to... Yeah. It's like that's where you would put books about, like, drawing cartoon art. Yeah. Which I think is how they wound up there. Yeah. But it is an uneasy fit. So I think, like, when I sort of started taking care of the collection, which is probably a good, I don't know, 10 or 12 years yeah. ago, um, it, it was, at that point, 
there was a small graphic novel collection, and then you had some stuff was in the teen room, right. some stuff was in nonfiction, and some stuff was just kind of put into fiction. And that, that's weird because there's this kind of weird gatekeeperness of like, oh, this is fiction. Like, say, like, right. Mouse by Art Spiegelman, which was this, you know, yes. seminal in the, in the, like, the, the, in that genre or in, right. in that form because... We read it in my in one of my high school yeah, history classes. It was one of the first books right. that really it's... showed, like, these can be works of art or whatever. Right. But then sometimes you'll get, like, like libraries will place that in the novels versus something else. Like a Spider-Man right. comic, that's not a novel. Right. That goes somewhere else, you know? Right. Um, so there's a lot of kind of weirdness mm-hmm. of that. Um, and I think our collection, we did at one point, we tried to kind of manage, like... With the superhero stuff, what's the more adult superhero stuff? Right. What's more going to appeal to teens? That got, unless you're literally reading every single one of them, you don't really know. Right. So eventually we transitioned all the superhero stuff to the teen collection in addition to a separate kind of teen collection that it's more like you would have a YA novel versus right. like a, an adult novel. And there's a lot of bleed over in that yeah. stuff too. Um, and then sort of all the rest of it ended up in the adult graphic novel collection. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's an interesting collection because... It, it straddles that border of fiction and nonfiction a right. lot. Um, it includes both of those things, right? So, and but but unlike the rest of the collections, we don't assign the nonfiction ones, no. do we? Numbers they're just all graphic novels. And, and I think we looked at that at one point, yeah. but it got to be because conf- there's some stuff that like, you know, like I I, I brought a collection of them here today to yeah. kind of talk about one of them specifically. It's it's somewhere amongst like it's kind of fiction it's kind of biography it's kind of autobiography it's kind of memoir it's kind of essays and that all kind of blurs together and and even in in novels and and in fiction don't i know it yeah that's (laughs) as a cataloger don't i know it yeah these are considerations but i think in this form it gets even weirder because it's so easy for things to break out of like traditional forms right yeah um yeah, so, I mean, I yeah. guess that's kind of, you know, in terms of our collection, it's an interesting collection because it, it kind of, um, it used to sort of sit in the stacks of fiction. Mm-hmm. I think it was in right at the beginning of fiction. Yeah. Eventually got shifted to kind of like to the side of fiction. Yes. Which I think is a nice place for it because it kind of is its own thing. Right. It kind of deserves being its own space. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a little, like, adjacent to fiction. Yes. Um, For anyone wondering who's familiar with the building, it is on a low shelf next to those, like, central stairwell mm -hmm. by fiction. Kind of near the sci-fi and mystery fiction collection. Exactly. In a similar sort of shelf to the book club collection, for Mm -hmm. people familiar with that. And, you know, if you have no idea what we're talking about, stop at the reference desk. We'd be happy to show you where it is. As always, if you have no idea what you're talking about, please come to the reference desk. Yeah. Um, and it's fairly small in terms of size, Mm -hmm. probably due to shelving constraints, largely, right? Yeah, I mean, I just did a big, during COVID, I did a big weed of that collection, which, like, pained me to do. Um, you know, it's, this is the first time I've been like fully in charge of a collection. So I never had to, I've weeded, you know, the general nonfiction before, but never like, I remember ordering this and it's so great, but only (laughs) two people have read it and we've had it for four years and you have to let it go. Yeah. And that's hard. But then you have to think, you know, you want to make room. Like it was literally overflowing. Exactly. And again, because like some of them, there's not a standard format. It, it gets really kind of crammed and right. it, it can be a mess at times. So yeah, it's been fully weeded. Um, it's still kind of bursting at the seams right. a little bit, but well, hopefully, um, 
hopefully the ones that have been weeded will find new homes at the book sale. I hope so, yeah. So. I hope somebody who's really into them went to the book sale and was like, you yeah. know, cashed in on that. Yeah, know? I mean, like you said, they, they do tend to be pretty pricey. Pro- I mean, because basically they're art books. Yeah. You know, I mean... The paper quality has to be better, and mm-hmm. of course, all of that color ink. You know, yeah. like they're they're more expensive to produce. Yeah. So finding and them at the book sale can be a great deal on them. And often, I mean, the artists that make them spend years and years and years right. making one book, just because right. it's it's very labor intensive. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so what are some of the new ones that you have brought to talk about? So I kind of went through not specifically new yeah. stuff, just kind of, I wanted to get a general sense of some of the stuff that's in the collection right. and just kind of the big sort of span of different types of books yeah. and different subjects matter that it covers. Um, one of them that this is actually a new title. I just finished it this morning. Yeah. Um, it's called seek you a journey through American loneliness by Kristen Radke. Um, this is her second book. Okay. Um, the first one was called Imagine Wanting Only This. came out a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. That was really great as well. Um, this one's an interesting one because it's it, it's one of those weird ones that kind of doesn't really have a precedent before it. It's, it's like an essay. It's like a personal essay that blends into a meditation on the conception of loneliness and mm-hmm. what that means for American culture. Um, to me, I liken it... Not to get too heady with this stuff, yeah. but um, there's sort of a subgenre of a subgenre of film that's sort of the personal narrative essay film. Uh, like a famous famous filmmaker for this would be um, Chris Marker or Agnes Varda, who just mm-hmm. died in the past year or a couple years ago. Um, these are like French filmmakers who kind of came out of the 60s. And basically they would use a topic as a jumping off point yeah. to then kind of just ruminate on, you know, taking different paths from that topic talking about other topics while also sort of talking about their own lives right. in a way. Um, and that's kind of what she does in this yeah. book, which is really fascinating. I'd never really read a graphic novel specifically like that. Um, it goes into all kinds of places. You know, it deals with COVID stuff. Yeah. It deals with like the isolation. A lot of yeah. people dealt with through that. So it's very current. Yeah. Um, it deals with some political stuff. She does a lot of um, looking at, sort of psychological research. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one whole section on the researcher who did this famous study where they um, took monkeys mm-hmm. and basically like just raised them in a, in like a, a cage with no parent or no anything. Yeah. Um, and shows the ways that that kind of really damaged their psyches and damaged these monkeys. But what's interesting is um, she's kind of talking about how prior to that, even in like human child rearing, like when people would raise their kids it was often thought that like you didn't want to coddle them too much. You right. didn't want to like give them too much affection because it would make them weak or whatever. Right. Um, and that really, these studies kind of like changed the way that people raise their children. Yes. But what's interesting is this goes into the actual scientific research that did that and the way that that affected his own marriage and the fact that he was isolated from his own family. <laughs> and so the way that he did this thing then ultimately helped in terms of like, you know, this concept of American loneliness right. It helped sort of future generations, but it destroyed his own family, yeah. which is really interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely sounds like a wide ranging work. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. But all sort of ultimately circling back to kind of the, like, like the title says, the sort of central theme of loneliness, mm-hmm. but coming at it from, you know, a scientific perspective, a cultural perspective, a personal perspective, mm-hmm. I'm sure more as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of done in like almost like little segments or little yeah. stories, but they keep kind of 
dancing around this one subject right. and ultimately just kind of coming back together. Yeah. Back to right. the... Sort of like multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sounds really so interesting. I highly recommend that yeah. one. That was really one of the better things I read yeah. this year. Yeah. Um, it does look intriguing. Another one that... This one's interesting. It came out a few years ago. Yeah. In 2017, I think. It's called My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris. This is a really fascinating story because the the woman who wrote this, she was, I think, a commercial artist who went to art school in the 60s. Um, in the early 2000s, or in, when she was in her 40s, yeah. she contracted West Nile disease oh. and became paralyzed, couldn't use one of her hands, mm. couldn't do her job anymore, so ended up sort of transitioning into doing um, graphic art, like yeah. creating a graphic novel. She spent something like 10 years writing this book. Um, it was all done in like notebooks with big pens, which wow. is really fascinating. And then it was reproduced kind of exactly how she did it in her right. own notebooks. Um, and the story, it's kind of, uh, kind of a memoir. It's kind of about her own life of growing up as a Latina mm-hmm. in, I think it's in Chicago in the 1960s, um, but also being a lesbian. Yeah. Um, having like trans people in her life mm-hmm. um and then it's kind of framed around a murder mystery of she lives in an apartment building and it seems like somebody has been murdered so she has a child who is also mm. a, a monster she's mm-hmm. like a monster truck so apparently she was right. obsessed with like monster films and yeah. stuff as a kid she and her friend who so she's like a werewolf her friend is a frankenstein monster and they have to investigate this yeah. murder mystery but again it goes all over the place right. ties into like the politics and the cultural movements yeah. of the time um, and then weirdly, so I guess like she, she wrote this thing was a complete unknown. Yeah. It got picked up. I think it was Fantagraphics, which is one of the main publishers in, uh, graphic novels. Um, yeah. Fantagraphics yeah. picked it up. Um, huge, 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 like in that small world of graphic novels, a lot of hype over it. Yeah. And then it got held up on the, like in the Panama Canal because of some shipping <laughs> issue. So it didn't make it. So she spends like, you know, 10 years writing right. this book, oh, gets yeah. it published. It gets held up. Yeah. There's all this like, you know, want and desire people to read it. It finally comes out. It gets heralded as like this masterpiece. Yeah. There's a part two that's was supposed to come out, I don't know, two years yeah. ago. And like a similar thing, I think COVID set it oh, back. Man. I think it's finally yeah. supposed to come out in September. Okay. I, fingers That's crossed, exciting. who knows, yeah. but yeah. I'm, yeah, hopefully it wasn't held up on that ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. It's, it's probably on that ship, yeah. yeah. So another highly recommended one. Yeah. Um, completely different from, from right. CQ, like two very, very different books. Right. Well, and I mean, you know, two very different artistic styles. Too. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with graphic novels might be imagining that they're all like in the artistic style of a sort of, you know, typical superhero mm-hmm. comic and... I mean, some are, some are yeah. but they don't have to be. I yeah. mean, it can be just as varied as writing styles, you know, in a typical novel. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and some artists, too, right. will use different styles in right. different books. I mean, a lot of them will have a sort of their style, right. um, which becomes iconic if it's, you know, like one of the bigger artists. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think you, like you were saying, just the fact that, like, these were done with basically a big pen mm-hmm. obviously gives them a different look than something that, you know, an artist did using computer software or mm-hmm. with pastels. I don't know if that's been done. I assume so. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. You know, or, or whatever. The medium makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and presumably is picked... You know, partly because that's what the artist likes to do, but also then contributes to the how, like how the story is told. Well, and this one's interesting because I think so much of the story, and because again, it's that that weird blending of like the author's actual 
life versus right. this kind of fantasy story. But because so much of the way that this book was published, the backstory of like her own life and her own right. kind of struggles as an artist were such a big part of it. So to actually print it, and you can even see they kind of reproduce like the holes in, right. the, in the binder right. or in, in the notebook. Um, I think that's so integral yeah. to the art that they couldn't have not published it this way. Yeah, it would, right. It would just it would give you a totally something. different feel. Yeah. And yeah, not, it wouldn't be how it was created. Because mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, yeah, it would be, it would be a very different thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, even just looking at it now as you're flipping through it, like, imagining it without the kind of notebook look, it would just give it a very, some, you know, it, it almost makes it feel like, um, like, the only thing I can think of is, like, the Blair Witch Project, where the way it was filmed, mm-hmm. and that kind of first, per- you know, it gives it that sort of very first person, like, like true crime, like, real life kind mm-hmm. of, you know, like, immediacy to it. That, yeah, and I, I think... That something more polished would yeah. would lack. Even though, obviously, this like was... Like the Blair Witch Part 2. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, not to say that this isn't polished and very thoughtfully crafted, mm-hmm. but, like choosing to have it on the line paper as part of that yeah and i mean it's supposed to be part of the the story is that it's right. a child writing it in her own notebook right um also too like the you know clearly the art style this is a very accomplished artist right but i think if it were done in a very glossy style it would just look like commercial art in a way yeah so i think the kind of sketchiness of it it gives it yeah it centers right. it in reality in right. a way and it's so interesting because you look at at some panels it does look like it could have been quickly done. Other times right. it's obviously like painstaking right. in the way that it's represented. Right. I mean, all that, all the crosshatching. Yeah. I mean, not that it's necessarily like physically difficult to crosshatch, but like that takes a long time. Yeah, definitely. And sometimes it's, I, there, this is one of the books too that, you know, it's a kind of common thing you'll see sometimes where you might see more cartoonish characters, mm-hmm. but then with very realistically rendered backgrounds, which yeah. can be a kind of surreal way of, of representing these stories and i mean that's kind of an allegory for a book like this of right. like there's a real background of like chicago in the 1960s in this tenement home right but then the sort of surreal nature of like these are monster children solving a mystery or yeah. whatever yeah yeah definitely um so then next we got uh, a more kind of traditional one yeah this is a graphic novel adaptation of The Parable of the Sower mm. by Octavia Butler. Yeah. Um, I chose this because I love Octavia Butler yes. in general. Have you read her? I read... Oh, of course I can't remember the title now, but it uh, involves time travel. Maybe they all did. Oh, Kindred. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I read yeah. Kindred several years ago. Okay. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoyed it, but it was also very intense. It's very, I mean, her work's very intense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, yeah. it's not for when you want something light and fluffy. No. But, you know, not every book should be or has to be light yeah. and fluffy. Um, She's an interesting author because, you know, she only had so much work. Like she did these kind of uh, series, like there was, um, it's called the Lilith's Brood series, mm-hmm. which was, that's more of like a hard sci-fi thing with like aliens and it's in the yep. future and there's spaceships. Then you had uh, Kindred, which was almost like reality, but with this one little tiny twist of like, there's time travel. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I do a lot of time travel reading, mm-hmm. and I feel like a lot of it is actually like historical fiction, mm-hmm. other than the fact that like, time travel. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's vastly more about life in that other time, which is often the past, mm-hmm. as it is in Kindred. But through versus, like a modern framing, right? Right, exactly. Versus yeah. like sci-fi about the like philosophy or nature of time travel mm-hmm. um 
Yeah, and then so then she she had um, this parable series, yeah. which is more of like a near future. I think it actually takes place in like 2025. She was writing yeah. this in the 80s. Um, near future, kind of post-apocalyptic world. Sort of uh, dystopian? Yeah, a very dystopian yeah. thing. Like this was kind of a little bit before that became like a big trend right. in, um, in kind of modern fiction writing. Um, then she had like a vampire book. Like just very, she was all over the place with yeah. like very different kind of stuff. But this one is really, it's been really popular lately um, just because it talks about, it's its sort of like a post kind of climate collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, there's sort of like rising fascism. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of sort of uh, everything has been privatized, mm-hmm. um, that stuff. It's very bleak reading in a lot of ways. There's some yeah. hopefulness in it, but it's, it's a lot to read uh, these days. Yeah, a little too on the nose perhaps. Yeah, but this was a good adaptation. And I, yeah. I brought it to you just because that's a common thing in uh, modern graphic novels is adaptations right. of kind of like popular novels right. Or often, I didn't bring any, but like biographies of famous people. Yep. That's a big one. Yeah. Um, there was actually a really good adaptation of uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five that mm. came out this year. That was yeah. such a difficult book to right. to make, um, but it was it was a really, really well done adaptation of that. I wonder if, if adaptations of, uh, of traditional novels would be a good place for people to start who don't typically read graphic novels. Yeah. Just because like... At least you you kind of you know what's going on, and so it maybe frees you up to kind of figure out the conventions more mm-hmm. without like without that sort of feeling of like I'm totally lost. Mm-hmm. Because like you you're not totally lost. You know the plot. It's mm-hmm. just you know, and then you can learn like how. Okay, I know this is what happened. What in this picture is conveying it, or like how is this mm-hmm. you know how is this art conveying it? Yeah, again, um, similar to like reading in a foreign language, right. it's easier if it's something you've read in English before. Exactly. If your your target language is different language, right? Um, yeah, for me, like I I think that that Slaughterhouse Five one mm-hmm. came out this year. I read it and I'd read the book twenty years ago. Yeah. So then from there, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I want to know how this intersected with Kervonikit's actual life. I read a biography of him that led me back to like the novel of Slaughterhouse right. Five. So, yeah, and it was interesting to read the two almost back to back because the graphic novel really did sort of play with the graphic novel format. Mm -hmm. And it was able to bring stuff to the, like, that you don't necessarily get from the novel, which can be good and bad. Sometimes it's somebody kind of going too far off of, like, the author's original Mm -hmm. intention. That one, I think, did a really good job. This one, I think, does a, this Parable of Sower does a really good job of that, too. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you just open it up, and if it's a novel you've read, it's like I don't see the character looking like that. Right. And it can be right, which it's is like, you know it's like the a same, film exactly the same problem you can run into with film and TV, and mm-hmm. even what you were saying about sometimes like going a little bit further from what you think the author intended. I feel like that's a problem that could happen with translated novels too. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and maybe you've read the original and then you read the translation and, or, you know, maybe you're never going to read the original because you don't know that language mm-hmm. and then you have no idea how faithful the translation yeah. is. Yeah, or even just like uh, multiple translations of, of a work and right. there's ways that like, you know, the translators will have their own biases in there. Exactly, they'll or, make different choices. Yeah, yeah. Or just bringing up different shades of the narrative mm-hmm. and lowering different shades. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's, Basically just, you know, it's it's another type of translation yeah. uh, with, with the same pros and cons. And it, it's that interesting thing, too, of, like, it's it's similar to, like, a film adaptation, yeah. but it's a little bit closer to the original uh, novel kind of narrative. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to kind of see. Right. It's like a, it's a mini step from, like, a novel to then a graphic novel, yeah. then up to, like, a film adaptation. Yeah. 
Not that that's always the final goal. Right. Some things should never be made into film adaptations. No. no, some of my favorite books, I just, you know, if I'm just, I'm like, on the one hand, I'd love to see that as a film because it would increase the audience for one of my favorite authors. Mm. But, but I'm like, I just can't imagine how you could possibly make this into a film that would work. Yeah. Like, without just drastically changing the story. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes sometimes the way something is told just doesn't translate well from one media to yeah. another. Yeah. Um, I feel like especially if it's something where there's like a lot of internal narration, mm-hmm. you could definitely translate that to a graphic novel. Mm-hmm. But to translate that to a purely visual form, mm-hmm. that, I mean... Unless you want a movie that's all voiceover. But even in a graphic novel, it's hard, too, because right, if there's... you just if it's all voiceover, it's, right. it's a novel with pictures. Then, exactly. You know? Right. It's a different yeah. It's a different deal. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, some stuff just, yeah, it's it's not meant to be. Right. Yeah. Um, so then the next one yeah. I brought, this is more of a straight up sort of nonfiction. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Kent State, Four Dead in Ohio by uh, Durf Backdurf. Interesting name. Hmm. He had an interesting um, a previous book of his. His first one was called My Friend Dahmer. So he actually mm. went to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer and was friends with him. Is that? I think there's a movie. Of there the was same a film title. made out of that. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which that was a really interesting book. Yeah. His next one was called Trash, which was about he worked as a garbage man. That was really huh. interesting because and I assume those were both graphic novels. Also. Yeah, the Trash one was cool because it was it was the narrative of him being like a kind of angry. <laughs> 20-something garbage man, <laughs> but then it would intersplice it with, like, kind of facts and mm-hmm. stories about, like, sustainability, right. and, like, it's very bleak, too. <laughs> like, it's talking about, in general, where trash goes, <laughs> right. where we think it goes, where it actually goes. Right. It's a bleak one, yeah. um, but really, really worth reading. Yeah, sounds right at my alley. This one was interesting because it's the first one that he did that isn't uh, doesn't relate to his own life, other than I think he's from Ohio. Right. Um, but it's it's he did a massive amount of research mm-hmm. into the killings at yeah. uh, Kent State University um, of the the four students that were killed yeah. by the National Guard. Um, it's it's really good. It he does do a good job of trying to kind of show all sides yeah. a, as best as one can. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's characters who are like National Guardsmen who right. are. He does a really good job of illustrating how those were like you know young people who could have, who were like the peers of these college right. students just kind of being on different different kind of mm-hmm. sides of the train tracks or whatever yeah. um yeah it's good it's sad of course yeah. obviously anything that ends in in something like that but it's it's really interesting to see it almost like i mean he lays out like the map of of what was happening that day right um I'd never read that much into this incident. Yeah. Um, so it's really, really fascinating. And again, because of the graphic format, you can literally, if you're reading uh, like a, a book about this, mm-hmm. you'd have to sort of make a mental map in your head right. um, of where everything was. And he really gives you a sense of just how chaotic things were based off of what the actual geography yeah. of the place where this took place was. Yeah. Um, so really, another highly recommended yeah. one. And it's um, interesting because that is all in black and white. Yeah, um, yeah. I think he only works in black and white, which is sometimes... It does give it a more kind of stark nature. Yeah. But, I mean, some artists, I guess it's just, you know, maybe they literally just, like, don't want to deal with color. Right. Or it's more expensive. Mm-hmm. I know if they're coming from, like, the indie kind of comic yeah. world, it might be different now with more people doing stuff uh, like computer. Right artwork but back in the day when you literally had to like pencil like the the process would be 
pencil out your work, do it in ink, right. then fill it in. And right. then if you know, you're lucky, you would have somebody who would color it. Or yeah. if you're do- working as an individual, you'd have to color it yourself. Right. right. Um, Never mind all the hand lettering. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. definitely. So, so, yeah. I mean, it also kind of evokes a black and white film. Yeah, um, definitely. You know, or, I mean... I feel like there's this idea that a lot of us have, especially as kids, but I feel like it kind of sticks to adulthood that, like, because, like, black and white was the sort of original form of film and sepia was, like, sort of the early photographs, you have this idea that, like, you know, life in olden days actually happened in black and white, which is obviously insane. Yeah. (laughs) But, like, I feel like it's kind of, it's, right, it is, like, a real sort of just vague sense. And I feel, you know, that, that might be part of it, too, just to be like, you know... It also it also makes me think of a newspaper. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And but you know, I guess that's one of the one of the things that's both intriguing and daunting about graphic novels is that you know it's very much a show don't tell kind of thing. And now you're sitting there and you're like, well, why is this in black and white? Mm-hmm. Like, is it just that's that's how the artist works? That's how it's produced? Or like, is it trying to contribute something? Mm to the story Mm. and like what does it make me think of is that what the author wanted me to think of and and i think that can be really a beauty of the genre because it allows you to kind of fill in Mm -hmm. a lot of that for yourself but but also if you're equally if you're not used to it it's sort of you know you're like oh i'm can almost be overwhelming yeah you have to Um, kind of put in a little bit of work right until you kind of get your mind to that place where because I, mean, I, I know in that, mm-hmm. that Scott McCloud book, that Understanding yeah. Comics books, he makes the point that like, just like editing in a film where unless you're intentionally trying to jar the audience, good editing should be under the radar. Right. Like you shouldn't notice that the film right. was edited. And in a lot of ways with graphic novels, again, unless you're trying to kind of bring attention to the fact that this is like a drawing on a page right. or these are separate panels, the idea is that you read it like a film. You just... Right read through it at whatever pace you would read through and your your yeah. mind kind of absorbs it almost like a dream or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And maybe just for me, because I haven't done it enough, like I'm, I'm not able to do it unconsciously yet. Mm-hmm. And so I can get kind of, not tripped up necessarily, but just sort of drawn out of it by being like, okay, but like, what is this trying to do? Rather than being absorbed into the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which can happen with books, too. It's why yeah, I don't read definitely. a lot of, like, literary fiction. Because mm. I feel like that tends to pull me back out. I kind of get tripped up on, like, well, what are they doing with the language? Yeah. Which is, I mean, fine. It's right. just not my personal cup of tea. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting with literary fiction yeah. because that's part of the nature of it. Like, right. it's not just a straight kind of telling of a story. Like, you're meant to really play with the language. Right. And see what the author's doing with the language. Right. Which, yeah, yeah, it's just not personally what I'm looking for in a book. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, graphic novels, I mean, I'm sure some of them are meant to be that way. Just Mm. like, you know, there's literary fiction. Why not? I don't know if you would call it a literary graphic novel, but, like, maybe, I don't know. I mean, graphic novels come from an interesting kind of place because with the term literary fiction, there's also some kind of weird degree of snobbery in there. Oh, absolutely. So it's interesting that graphic novels have for a long time just been treated like they're second class in right. general and they still are to some level because oh it's yeah. just comics those are for kids so i think you maybe have a little bit less i think most of the people who are creating these graphic novels probably don't turn their nose up at like a spider-man comic right they probably have some love for that if not like actively are really into right. superhero comics just because you know, i know somebody like art spiegelman who right. did mouse who again foundational for 
getting these taken seriously he i mean his his roots are in like superhero stuff too you know um so i I don't know if there is anything that would be considered like this is a literary graphic novel versus uh more like a mainstream one yeah you definitely could find, I mean, you, it's, it's one of those things, I guess, what is literary fiction? Like, you know right. it when you read it, I guess. Yes. Absolutely. And so much of that is like your own concepts of what yeah, that is. For yeah, for sure. Thankfully, we don't have like a literary fiction section here. Ugh, yeah, that would, that be, would break my heart. Yeah, that would be very pretentious. And <laughs> yeah, bad. no, I would not, I would not be into that. I mean, yeah. I personally have, I don't, I don't even love that we break out mystery and science fiction yeah. and short stories. I would kind of rather just have all fiction mm-hmm. fiction yeah and then like it's up to i mean i'm sure any anyone who loves mysteries is very angry that i'm saying yeah because they want to browse those collections right. it's so hard that balance of like yeah. what makes but, like what about fantasy why don't we yeah. call that out well that why gets like just call kind of out thrown into sci-fi fiction? right sometimes yeah it, it used to hear more and in recent years we've moved away from that okay. and now if it's fantasy unless it's a series that has been ongoing and was previously in sci-fi and we haven't okay. moved it over, we do try to put fantasy just in fiction. Okay. But, like, what about suspense? Mm-hmm. Why doesn't... Like, if why do we call out mystery in sci-fi but not other genres that, in my mind, are equally major? Like, romance, you Well, know? it's just, like, why is, like, horror in fiction but not... That's technically fantasy on some level. Right, it's not, it can be, or it can yeah. sometimes be sci-fi. Right. Should we just have say, uh, you know what, that SF in the call number now is speculative fiction, and we mm. are going to put fantasy and horror there. Mm. It gets, it again gets that idea of like... <sighs> it gets dicey. Fiction versus genre fiction. Right. And that's kind of against novel. It's interesting right. talking about Kurt Vonnegut before. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was one of those guys that was able to kind of transcend genre fiction, mm-hmm. even though he was writing science fiction. Right, but does his stuff get put in science no, fiction? No, it's literary Not fiction. Not usually, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Because it's, right, you know, I mean... Ian McEwan wrote a novel about robots recently. Mm-hmm. Did that get put in science fiction? No. no yeah. It's robots. Right. Like, that's science fiction. Yeah, of course. Like, I'm sure if you asked him, he I would hope he would say it's science fiction. I would hope he would. Maybe not. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. But it's interesting, like, Octavia Butler, right. like, that's, a lot of that's, that's literary fiction in the mm-hmm. writing in a yes. lot of ways, you know? Right. Very much so. But I mean, because it's about mm-hmm. aliens and yeah. whatever, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, there's... So I would love to just say, eh, you know what, it's all fiction. Yeah. And, like, if you really like to read mysteries, for example, you probably know how to recognize one on the mm-hmm. shelf. Because they, like, the cover art tends to have, you know, it. it's not like they're all the same. But, like, you know, just from looking at, like, the style of the font and the mm-hmm. colors on the spine, you're gonna, like, if you're really into mysteries, you can probably pick that out. If you're really into sci-fi, you can probably pick that out. Although you know? I feel like now with a lot of modern, like, sci-fi in particular, yeah. like, they try to kind of class it up. Yeah. Wait, am, I, am I making it look <laughs> like a classy cover so you can't really tell? Yeah. Um, and that's, again, that that could be that breaking down of those right. boundaries of, like, well, who's to say it's a sci-fi novel, even though right. it's about robots? Right. We're practically living in the age of robots already, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and people going to Mars or whatever, so. That's true. Maybe that'll all be reclassed as fiction someday. Yeah, yeah. Um... Anyway, anyway, we digress. So what else up, do you have for us? So this is one um, kind of a hard turn from Kent State. This is <laughs> Fetch, How a Bad Dog Brought Me Home by Nicole J. Georges. It's a graphic memoir. So this is one that's just straight up yeah. a memoir in graphic form. Um, her work, I really love. She came out of like the underground comic scene in, uh, I think, Portland, Oregon area. Mm-hmm. She's written a few books. Um, 
This one, just as a, as a dog person, it really kind of captured my heart. The cover um, is adorable. The cover is really adorable. It's basically just about like when she's uh, pretty young. She's like a teenager. She and her boyfriend at the time somehow adopt this dog who ends up just being a nightmare dog that just bites everything, <laughs> you oh, know, no. pees everywhere. Yeah. It's this whole disaster. And then throughout, you know, she has this dog for maybe 15 years. Yeah. Um, so as she is coming of age as a person, mm-hmm. uh, the dog is coming of age. Um, she ends up growing to just just love this dog like she doesn't love another being. Yeah. Um, but the dog is just always... I mean, the cover is just like the dog <laughs> wearing wearing one of those cones. So clearly it did something bad or it got hurt somehow yeah. or whatever. It's it's really, really tender, um, really heartbreaking. The dog, you know, passes away at the end. That's, That's why I don't read books with dogs on the cover. Because the dog always dies. There's like a website, I think, called The Dog Dies. Probably. And you can search yeah. and see if like an animal dies in the movie or whatever. Yeah, so, that sounds right. Yeah, it definitely... It's, it's, I think she gets another dog in the end, but it's it's very... It's very sweet, but it's it's a difficult read if yeah. you if you're not into you know the life cycle of a dog, yeah. I guess. Uh, but yeah, again, I feel again, I feel like if you're not, then you've probably learned by now that like if there's a dog on the like, I mean, you. There's a sad looking dog on the cover. You learned that in grade school when they assign like Shiloh and where the red fur yeah. grows. Yeah, don't like, read it. Right, you learn that pretty early on, like. If there's a dog on the cover, it does not make it to the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. I actually, like, recently, not to get too personal, but I had last year, like, an older dog, yeah. and it came to that time, and I'd read this book years ago, and mm-hmm. I read it again, and it yeah. actually gave me a lot of, kind of, comfort, I yeah. guess, and, and insight into that process of, like, because part of it, towards the end of this book, she has to make that decision right. to kind of, like, let the dog go, right. Um which is hard and absolutely yeah and she she does a really good job i think of representing what that's like to go through that yeah um so i mean like like a good book like a graphic novel can really help you through moments like that right yeah Um, absolutely yeah so that's a good one a really good one but if you're averse to dogs maybe (laughs) maybe don't read it at the moment um last one i got here this is a very different one this is one that up until recently was cataloged as fiction here for whatever reason uh it's called here by richard mcguire i think he's not typically he might be a fiction author i think this is the only kind of uh graphic novel book he has it looks like Mm. oh he's written he's directed a couple films um regular contributors to new yorker yeah, um, this is a really interesting work. Um, it's a more experimental kind of mm-hmm. one. It's basically about a house, and it's kind of the life cycle of the house, but time barriers get kind of broken down. Mm-hmm. So you see, like, here's, like, an image of the house in 1986, yeah. and then it shows you a panel of, like, the exact same place in the house right. in 1954, oh, but what was happening cool. then. Yeah. And it goes everything. I think it goes back to, like, the 1600s. Yeah, there's, like, yeah. 1622 what was going on before the house was there right. in that sort of piece of land. Oh, that's um, really cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it ends up, you end up finding these like narratives flowing through in all these different timelines. Yeah. But all the way, and again, you could only do this in a graphic novel because it's literally showing you um, like kind of like a frame, right. an image of like the house, but then those same places in that same image yeah. but in different kind of time streams yeah i mean gosh that's 1402 yeah 1402 yeah that's amazing do any of them ever go into the future or is it i think it does i, I haven't i read it a long yeah. time ago but i'm pretty sure it does at oh, least yeah, at some actually, point i think 
right there. What does that say? Oh, there you go. Yeah, twenty two thirteen. Twenty two thirteen. Yeah. Wow. So. Yeah, that's right. I think in twenty two thirteen, it's a historical representation of what happened in that place. <laughs> so it's that's a, amazing. Yeah, it's a really good one. If you, I guess, if you're not a big graphic novel reader, but you want something, yeah, really kind of experimental and out there, it's yeah. definitely um, it's Might a be real the one gem. For me. Yeah, it's and it almost reads it. It reads almost like. Like an art book, yeah. more so than some of the other ones, um, of you can kind of just go through and appreciate mm-hmm. just the artwork. And that's kind of like a pastel kind of yeah. thing going on there. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. That's that's a really weird I'm one. I'm definitely intrigued by that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes for me, too, it's easier to have a graphic novel like that. And for everyone who's not looking at it, I mean more picture than words. Mm-hmm. Like, they're... The words on each page are pretty sparse yeah, in that one. Yeah. And I think my mind is just so trained, like, read the words, read mm-hmm. the words. And in a lot of graphic novels, it is hard for me to slow myself down. Yeah. And and look at the pictures, too. And then I find myself just reading the words. But if you do that, it doesn't make sense. But I think, though... Like, you can miss, you can miss a lot of the story. Yeah. Because, like... You know, instead of there being a sentence being like, you know, so-and-so was feeling sad, you need to... You need to actually look at the picture to to get that. Mm-hmm. And for me, sometimes I'll just go so quickly through and literally only look at the words mm-hmm. that I'm like, oh wait, I like I didn't I missed I missed crucial information. <laughs> I mean, I think the way I think about that is the same, probably similar to like literary fiction yeah. of like you could take a literary novel and you could read through it and read at your regular reading right. pace and you're going to miss a lot of the beauty right. of the words, but you're going to get the story. Right. And then maybe you can go back yeah. if you wanted to, to really just kind of embrace the yeah. language. And with graphic novels, I tend to just read through it at yeah. a regular pace. And I feel like according to that Scott McCloud book, right. he says that you're you're kind of just subconsciously absorbing yeah. the imagery and everything. And maybe again, you should try that. Yeah. Like you're kind of processing it like a film. Right. So don't, I think you don't need to feel, yeah. unless like you turn to a page and it really just captures you, yeah. then fine. But right. that's like pausing the film right. or rewinding the film. But I think you can totally just right. read through yeah. at your regular pace and your mind will pick up these yeah. things, you know, like this fetch book. Like, you know, I know what the dog looks like, even if I haven't stopped to linger right. on, on what the dog looks right. like, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. So different, I mean, different ways you can approach it. Right. I know like, I know people who are visual artist and yeah. they spend a lot of time reading these. Yeah. I, as like a heavy reader, right. I read through them fairly quickly yeah. and I'll only kind of pause to go back if I, if I'm really struck yeah. by an image or something. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I will say something graphic that did go into our nonfiction collection that I cataloged yesterday mm-hmm. um, was a cookbook, mm. but it was a cookbook in, in graphic format but like Mm. fundamentally it was recipes Mm -hmm. um i think it's called let's make dumplings and it's the Mm. sequel to one a couple sequel it is made by the same people who a couple of years ago did a graphic cookbook called let's make ramen yeah i read Um, that one yeah yeah Yeah. and i was like i i don't think this was purchased for the graphic novel Mm -hmm. collection i could be wrong but i also feel like like you you don't sit down and read a cookbook (laughs) Although it's interesting, like, because the, the ramen one, I think yeah. I might have chosen that yeah. for the graphic novel collection, but I think ultimately, I think it got stuck in cookbooks, which probably makes more sense. Yeah. Because I think if you are going to, if you're looking to make ramen, right. that could be very instructive, but it actually is done in a way that it yeah. reads, there is a narrative kind of going through it. So you could it. sit down and read through it. I sat down and read it, but <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if everybody would, but then I would definitely want to go back right. to do the recipes. Like, right. I didn't sit down and then 
stop to make ramen right. or whatever. Maybe I should have. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. Yeah. But that's cool. I, I think that's great. Like yeah. the idea that there, maybe that is a better way to, to, to sort of, like, I don't, I mean, I cook a lot. I don't yeah. sit down and read cookbooks. I'll pick them up and I'll right. find a recipe and do it. Right. I don't read them cover to cover. That yeah. was the only one I've ever read cover to yeah. cover just because of the way that it's, it's presented. I right. Think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. There's more of that narrative through it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think there are some other cookbooks that, that sort of have that going on. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't know if anyone actually reads through them yeah. where it's sort of like, you know, there'll be a few pages of narrative about their history with food and then there'll mm-hmm. be some recipes mm-hmm. there'll be some pages of, you know, more narrative but yeah does anyone that makes me think of those? those online recipes you find where oh, it's like a, like a 30 minute preamble about their vacation yeah. to tell you how to make right and you're like i just wanted the recipe yeah i just want to scroll all the way down to the bottom it always makes me very happy when they have a jump link yeah just like click here to go to the re- and like yeah. yes that is like if i'm looking for recipes online it's because i'm hungry and i want to cook something yeah, i don't want to learn about right your like, story just of- Tell me if I have the ingredients that I need for this. Yeah. And if I don't, like, then I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to read your story right now. Yeah. Maybe, it, maybe in my post-dinner, like, food coma, I would... Maybe? maybe. I've never done that. Yeah, at that point, I'm, I'm done with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess there's an advantage of cookbooks. You can just flip right to the recipe and yeah. not have to worry about that. Yeah. That, I, you know, I enjoy... I don't borrow a lot of cookbooks, mm-hmm. but um, but I do enjoy flipping through them when I catalog them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if they have good pictures. Yeah, that's key. It's unfortunate to catalog them right before lunch or dinner. Yeah, that's not a good idea. <laughs> no. Um, anyway, so yeah, there are, there are two graphic cookbooks lurking in our regular cookbook collection mm-hmm. for anyone curious about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't know that that would be a great way into graphic novels, but... No, it's probably not. I mean, I guess but it, it could be. it might be a fun diversion. I think the idea of, like, instructional manuals yeah. that are done in graphic form, and I can't off the top of my head if, I know I've definitely read some other stuff. I know right. in particular, like, I have, like, a bike repair manual that's mm. done in kind of graphic form. Oh, that could be fun. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there's, there's a lot of place to kind of use that form, mm-hmm. um, especially, too, like, if I'm looking at bike repair books and... That one's going to jump out at me, right. you know, Absolutely. just because it's different than mm-hmm. every other one or, mm-hmm. or with cookbooks, too, right. you know. Well, and I think I think sometimes, too, especially if it's sort of about a hands on topic, it can be very helpful to actually have it in a visual format, mm-hmm. you know, like sort of like watching a video of someone doing a half double crochet stitch versus like trying to look at a diagram of it and be mm-hmm. like, OK, for like, you know, hold the yarn this way and like. It's a visual thing, yeah. you know, whereas, yeah, if you can actually have it laid out in a series of pictures, that might be better or might be more comprehensible. Yeah. And yeah. I think with instruction manuals, they tend to be kind of antiseptic. You yeah. know, there's not a lot of personality, not always, but like usually not. So I think just that graphic format by its very nature, they tend to, usually there'll be some kind of narrator, yeah. either it's a representation of the author or some character right. or like a giant cat or something, I don't know, but like leading you through that. Yeah. And I think it can make it feel more approachable yeah. and more personable. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, that's a great overview of that collection. I feel like a lot of people don't know it's there or maybe mm. feel like it's not for them or... You know, just like anything that you're not familiar with, it can be kind of intimidating. But Mm -hmm. hopefully now uh, people will maybe feel more inspired to check it out. Mm -hmm. I mean, there really is 
something for everyone there. Yeah. Like you were, I mean, you've just given a very wide array of, of books, mm-hmm. um, you know, biography, more straight nonfiction, kind of, you know, multi-genre, horror, whatever. There's mm-hmm. really a lot of options. Yeah, definitely. Um, just like, just like with, you know, novels. It's interesting now that I'm thinking about it, it's almost like that, that ideal vision of a fiction collection we were talking about where you basically just like everything is just graphic right. novel. I think it, at one point it was graphic fiction and then we realized mm. like, well, these aren't fiction. Right. All I mean, they may not even be novels. Yeah, not even novels. But... I think there was talk at one point about changing it just to graphic, yeah. which probably would make more sense. It might, although then if you like... Graphic sounds like it could be, like, an explicit content. Oh, that's true. That's a good call. Yeah, you probably don't want that. That's a good point. Um, You know, I... That's probably where we got hung up on that before. That would be... That would be my guess. Yeah. Um, But there is something beautiful about, like, a collection like that where you can go in and it's every genre you can imagine, even every form. There's no kind of real barriers between fiction and nonfiction. It's just you pick it up and you're either intrigued or you're not. Exactly. Yeah. So... Yeah, so hopefully this will inspire some people to check it out. It's a great little collection. I'm kind of tempted to read the last one here by Richard mm. McGuire about the house with different, like, through different periods of time. Yeah, that's an interesting story. Yeah, that definitely. appeals to me. Yeah. Uh, maybe because I like time travel. I mean, not that it's time travel exactly, but yeah. but it, it, it seems akin to time travel. It's interesting. When I first read that, it made me think, I feel like I've had that, I have that thought often when I'm in yeah. a physical space of, like, what was this physical space like we can think in the library like in right. you know 1950 like what was happening here you yeah know? and this is really interesting because it's just like those echoes are are all around us right and it's kind of a really interesting way of represent like visual yeah. representation of yeah that. that's yeah. fascinating yeah. so i might be inspired to read it cool i do like to do a graphic novel every now and then mm-hmm. um they can be fun yeah so like, can I remember the last one I read? No. But that's probably a sign that it's time to read another. Maybe it is. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Of course. Um, people listening obviously have found at least one place to listen to this podcast. But if you're looking for more options, you can find us at mhl.org slash podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Um Justin Termini is also our producer, so thank you for producing the podcast, and we hope to catch you at the next episode. Bye. Bye.